blessed this morning? Yeah, I am. I, you ready to be blessed? Yeah. Today, I have my favorite consultant. <laughs> I don't know whether you love consultants or not, but I do. So this is my favorite consultant, Dr. Bill Hoyt. Let's give him a warm welcome here. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Uh, just, I want to warn you ahead, uh, you keep your wallet open now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, let's see. This one's on, right? And this one goes off somehow? <laughs> very good. Well, this morning, uh, uh, Pastor has asked me to come. Um, I think this may be the last invitation that I get. <laughs> Because he asked me to talk to you this morning and do some plain talk about money. And uh, so those of you who want to leave now, you know, feel free. But at any rate, uh, I really do count it a, a privilege uh, to be able to talk to you this morning about money. Um, yeah, all right, so that's the one I have to look at. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, money these days, a lot of political talk about money, a lot of talk about simplifying uh, the tax code. And... Uh, so, some, uh, some are reporting that there is actually energy going toward a, a simplified tax plan that basically has a two-line tax form. And the first line would be, how much do you make? And some of you are already anticipating the second line. Send it in. Uh, you know, those who care more about the political operation than us as the citizens, this would be the perfect tax form. And so maybe some of you are expecting this morning that is, as I talk to you about in plain language about money, that maybe we have a simple two-line sermon about money. And that is, how much do you have? And some of you are already ahead of me. Line two is, give it all. Well, that's really not what I want to do this morning. But listen to this. Dear Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor. But it's no great honor either. <laughs> I wear... Rich are the heaven, the time that I like to sit in the synagogue and pray. And maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. If I were a rich man, if I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? If I were a wealthy man 
Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that thought. Uh, we, you know, I, I love these lines out of it. You know, Lord, who made a lion and a lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. But would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a rich man? Have you ever wondered that? Well, the reality is, you are rich, and I am rich. There's a study that's done about personal wealth. Now, personal wealth simply means the wealth held by individuals as opposed to corporations, the government, and all of that. And uh, worldwide, in a global personal wealth study, 41.6% of all of the personal wealth in the world is held by citizens of the United States. Almost half is held by citizens of the United States. Uh, just uh, for your uh, interest, uh, China's two at 10.5, Japan, you can see down to, and you go down to the bottom of the top 10 list and it's South Korea with only 1.6% and yet they're 10th on the list. As a matter of fact, if, if you add up the, the numbers, what we really have here is that 85, 83.5% of all of the personal wealth in the world resides in just 10 countries, and the remaining 16.5% is spread among the remaining 184 countries in the world. And so, there are the super-rich. We hear a lot in our politics and in our everyday discourse and during the last election about the super-rich 1%. And... Uh, the reality is that um, in the political discourse, what they're saying is that, well, we, we should just uh, take more from the super-rich and everything will be cool. The reality is, if you do the math, if the super-rich, the 1%, were to give every single penny that they made, it would support our government for 18 hours. Obviously, that's not a solution to the problem that we have. But the reality also is that the top percent in a country that, present, that possesses 41.6% of the world's global personal wealth, they are super rich. So, you know, they're not the solution to our financial crisis as a country, but the reality is there are super rich in our world. But here's the thing that blows me away. A family of five in the United States, living just above the poverty line is actually the 1% compared to the rest of the world. In other words, you and I are the super-rich 1% of the world. Stop and let that one sink in for a second. Well, a lot can be expected, the Gospel of Luke says, from everyone who has been given a lot. And more will be demanded from everyone who has been entrusted with a lot. We are the super-rich 1% of the world. And therefore, considering all that we have been given, we would do well to engage in some plain talk this morning about money. Now, I'm going to... Whoa, what just in the world happened here? <laughs> Uh, there we go. I have never before preached a nine-point sermon. Jerry Sintis and I have a, a bet on as to whether or not I can get it done this morning before dinner tonight. But we're going to try. 
I think there, because we are the super rich, there are some things that we need to remember as we consider what we might do in supporting ministry in the life of your church. First of all, remember who owns it all. Remember who owns it all. In the Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So it's all the Lord's. Uh, We have in uh, Psalm 50, every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. You maybe heard about the person who was going through a real financial crisis and they were struggling and they were trying to make ends meet. Sounds a little bit like the person you're helping with the quilt. And they ran across this verse and they prayed. And they said, Lord, I know now that you own all the cattle on a thousand hills. Could you sell a few and send me the check? You know, we kind of sometimes wonder uh, if God couldn't uh, address our need that way. But the reality of these verses is to remind us that everything that we have and everything that is ultimately belongs to God. So when we talk about giving to God, when we give to God, we are not giving a portion, we're not giving God a portion of what is ours. What we are doing instead is simply returning to him a portion of what is already his. And the amazing thing is we get to keep the rest. That's what we're doing. We're giving God a portion of what is already his, and we are keeping the rest. Now, over the years as a pastor, I've been asked by numerous people, well, pastor, should I, should I tithe on my gross or on my net? And I say, well, maybe it kind of depends on how much you want to be blessed. Do you want to be blessed on your gross or on your net? Uh, you know, but the reality is this. That's not even the right question. That's not the question that we should be asking. The question is not how much should I give. In light of the fact that it all belongs to God, the question is how much should I keep? Remember, it all belongs to him. The second thing is, remember who you work for. Remember who you work for. Servants, do what you're told out of Colossians. This is the Apostle Paul giving instruction. Servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters. Well, isn't this interesting? Slavery existed, and... uh, I kind of wonder what what happened in the in the in the world of tweets after you know Paul wrote this because this is not politically correct at all. I should have been going after the slave owners, uh, but no, he has a word to those who are serving, those who are in slavery, and he says even to them, "Do what you're told by your earthly masters, and don't just do the minimum that will get by. Do your best." Work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. In Colossians, uh, the, the continuing of that passage is, keep in mind, then Paul writes, always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ, the sullen servant who does shoddy work, will be held responsible for being 
Uh, and being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. So here's the deal. You do not work for the boss from hell. Now that may be news to a few of you. A few of you may be saying, oh, you don't know my boss. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, no matter how good or how bad your earthly boss is, you do not work for your earthly boss. You work for the ultimate boss of heaven and earth. And the Bible tells us, serve that ultimate boss of heaven and earth with gladness. So remember who you serve. Remember who you work for. Work is not something you do to pass the time between weekends and retirement. For some people, they live for 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 3 o'clock whenever their work shift is over. Some live for Fridays. Some live for retirement. But work is just not a, 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 an evil necessity that we do to pass time until we don't have to do it anymore. But in reality, work is sacred service to God who made you, who loves you, and who gives you purpose in life. A significant part of that purpose is work. Third, remember that debt is deadly. Debt is deadly, and that is not overstating the case. The average American household carries an average balance of $15,956 in credit card debt. Some of you are going, really? Because you don't carry anywhere near that. And others are going, really? Because it's hard for you to imagine that some only have that much debt. But on the average, all across the United States, each person, on average, owes almost $16,000 in just credit card debt. Now, the average current interest rate on all credit cards is 12.83%. So assuming then that you were to carry a balance, an average balance of almost the $16,000 for 40 years, you're a prime adult life, 25 to 65, and you paid a little bit, down, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less, but over that period of 40 years, you averaged a balance on your credit cards of 15956 How much would you pay in interest? $2,629,618. And don't forget the 64 cents. Debt is deadly. Credit is deadly. But even more important than the lesson that comes to us from the math is the lesson that comes from us, the Word of God, from the Word of God in Proverbs. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave to the lender. You want to talk about slavery? There's all kinds of forms of slavery, and debt is one of those forms of slavery. We are under the authority of anyone to whom we owe money. So the message is simply, don't borrow. Now, in Act 1, Scene 3 of Hamlet, Polonius is talking to his son Laertes before Laertes is going uh, on a trip to Paris. And in that encounter with his son, he says, Neither a borrower nor a lender be. 
For loan oft loses both itself and its friend. That's pretty good advice when you stop and think about it. Practical advice. Don't borrow. Don't lend. Because oftentimes if you lend, you will lose both what you lent and the friend to whom you lent it. Well, that was Polonius' advice. But the reality is, God gives us different advice. Look at this in Luke chapter 6. But love your enemies, okay? Do good, yep, we're on that. And lend. Whoa, wait a minute. So are we supposed to be lenders, enslaving other people? Well, not quite, because he says lend, hoping for nothing in return. You know, when you first read that, you might say, well, you just don't charge interest. (laughs) No, he says, hoping for nothing in return. In other words, lend even if you have serious doubt about whether you'll ever be paid back. Forget about interest. So the reality is that in biblical economics, the first law is don't borrow. And the second law is lend expecting nothing in return. Debt is deadly. Fourth, remember to give yourself first. Remember to give yourself first. Second Corinthians. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I don't know about you, when I first read this verse, it's a little confusing to me. How, how does extreme poverty well up in rich generosity? But Paul is saying this marks the Macedonian Christians. He goes on then to explain, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond that ability. In other words, they were giving sacrificially. They weren't just giving what was convenient. They weren't even just giving what they had. They were figuring out ways that cost them dearly to be able to increase what they gave. Entirely on their own, he said. No prompting for me. Uh, No sermons nine points or otherwise, on money, Uh, nothing. But they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's, uh, sharing in the Lord's service. Many years ago when I was a young pastor, I had an older lady in my church, and she was uh, living on very limited means. And we were having a capital campaign. And she wrote a check. It was uh, in dollar amount. It was a small amount. But I knew her situation enough to know that it was, um, it was a, a, a great sacrifice for her to write a check in that amount. And <clears throat> I, I just didn't feel right about it. And so I went to visit her. And um, I, I tried to explain to her as her pastor that uh, I knew she was living on very limited means. And although the need of the church and, the, and what was going to be funded from the capital campaign was very, very uh, worthwhile, that, um, you know, she, she really should not feel obligated to give and I tried to return her check and I will never forget she looked at me and she said pastor don't rob me of the privilege of giving 
I've never tried to return a check since. (laughs) Not because I'm greedy on behalf of the Lord and the churches that I've served, but because I don't ever want to rob someone of the privilege of giving. And so these Macedonians were the model of people who, though they didn't have it to give, found ways to give sacrificially in order to um, participate. But that's not the end of it. The most incredible thing about this whole passage is found in verse 5. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, even more important than your giving money is giving yourself to God and his work on earth first. Now, this is my older son, Sean, when he was 12. Uh, Don't be fooled by that nice little smile. He was the teenager from hell. He dragged us right straight through. Um, you know, now, uh, some of you are wondering how he turned out, ultimately turned out fine. Now has two teenagers, and I want to tell you, there is such a thing as divine retribution. <laughs> and I am enjoying it a whole lot more than I should, but <clears throat> when he was going through his worst and darkest time, my wife was taking him someplace, and <clears throat> she asked a question uh, out of frustration with him more than really trying to get an answer from him. But she looked over at him as she was driving along and she said, Sean, what do you want to be when you grow up? And without missing a beat, he looked over at her and said, a mercenary. (laughs) Now, every mother wants to hear that from their firstborn. What do you want to do in life? I want to be a mercenary. Now, the first great achievement of my wife was that she did not crash the car. She came close, but she did not crash the car. And secondly, she looked at Sean and she said, well, Sean, I imagine that there are times and places where God needs mercenaries, and I'll just pray that those are the places where you get to be a mercenary. Pretty good answer. But, you know, who wants their child to be a mercenary? Well, here's the deal. You and I need to be careful that we are not spiritual mercenaries, that we are not giving and paying others to do ministry that in reality we should be doing ourselves. We need to remember to give ourselves first. Now, there is a uniquely first world question. We hear it in our country over and over and over again. The question is, how much is he or she worth? Well, remember this, that you and I are not about our net worth. Your worth is not expressed in terms of net worth. Now, when it comes to net worth... Uh, this is a little bit out of date because Jeff Bezos has closed the uh, gap on uh, on Bill uh, Gates here. But uh, uh, Bill Gates, 81 billion. Jeff Bezos, 67. Um, I've got the next six here, which I'll show you, uh, because I'm sure that there's at least one or two of you that are wondering if you made the top ten, right? Um, well, maybe not. But uh, 
you know, we describe these people as that's their net worth. Why Bill Gates is worth over $81 billion. Well, I got news for you. He isn't. He's not worth $81 billion. See, the reality is you and I are the children of God. We are his children. And we are created in his image. And that is our source of worth. It is the only source of worth. And the truth of the matter is, it means that before God, every single one of us is worth exactly the same. As I was driving over to the church this morning, I got a call from my wife. I could hear it in her voice. She was visibly shaken. On her way to church this morning, she passed a, a, a young woman uh, sitting on a, on a bus bench, uh, dirty, disheveled, um, looking very tired, hungry, vulnerable. Uh, because my wife is very heavily involved in, in working to combat human trafficking, uh, she just looked and saw a person who was incredibly vulnerable. She drove almost all the way to church and couldn't get the image out of her mind. She turned around and went back. The woman was still there. Uh, she called the police. The police didn't come. She stopped, and she asked some questions and asked, can I help you? And ultimately, she was uh, able to take this young woman to a place where she wanted to be. That young girl has exactly the same value to God that Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you or me have. Remember, you are not your net worth. You are a child of God, and you are made in his image, and that is where your worth and mine comes from. So you are worth far more than your net worth to God. Isn't that good news for most of us? <laughs> far more than our net worth. Number six, remember those who need it more than you do. When you're thinking about money and the management of this that God has entrusted to you, you're making decisions about what you will keep and what you will give. Remember those who need it more than you. How much, do you, how much do you and I need? Another way of asking it is, how, how much is enough? Uh, John D. Rockefeller, for a period of time, was the wealthiest man in the world. And when he was the wealthiest man in the world, somebody asked him, how much money is enough money? And his answer was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. And in Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So when you and I, in our giving, are kind to the needy, we're not just helping the needy, but we are honoring God as well. So remember those who need it more than you. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches 
but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Seven, remember to teach your children about money. In Deuteronomy, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Proverbs 22. Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. So teach them the budget. See, the reality is if you and I don't budget, we give ourselves over to the whim of the moment. We give ourselves over to Madison Avenue and their effective advertising psychology that makes us really believe that we cannot live without that trinket. And uh, until we have a budget and live by the budget, we are going to be spending money we don't have. And we are going to be spending money on things that really don't matter. And as a parent, not only have the budget, but let your kids in on the budget. And help them understand how much do you actually have to clothe them and to feed them. And so that pair of the latest sneakers that every child and every teenager has to have... What's the impact on the budget of buying that pair of sneakers as compared to another one that's just as good but not so pricey? So teach them the budget. Teach them to give first. And I put these next two up second, uh, together. Save second and spend third. For, for a long time, my wife and I, as we were raising our boys, uh, we, we budgeted, we talked about budget. Uh, we taught them to give first. And then, then, then you can spend. But one day, we all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, we're missing something here. Because before spending comes saving. And so we want to be teaching our children to give to God first, not leftovers, but give to God first of the first fruits, as the Bible oftentimes talks about it. Teach them to save second and then spend and live off the rest and live within their means. Now, the reality here is that we have to model. If we're really going to teach our children, we have to model what we teach them. So we can tell them to have a budget, but if we don't have a budget, they're not going to do it. We can tell them to have a budget and live by it, but if we don't live by our budget, they're not going to do it. We can tell them to give first, save second, and then spend. But if we're not doing it, they won't do it. And so helping our children to understand money from a not just sensible vantage point, but from a biblical vantage point, we need to be modeling what we're teaching them. Number eight, remember why you give. Remember why you give. 
In 2 Corinthians 9, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, it's not, we don't give because we have to. We don't give because the Bible tells us that we we must. Uh, We don't give because the pastor gets all on us about it from time to time and makes us feel a little guilty. Uh, We don't give for any of those reasons. But we give out of a response to God's grace. God has extended grace to us in measure beyond belief. See, getting a hold of this sometimes goes all the way back in our thinking and our understanding to the whole issue of sin. And because we haven't, uh, you know, done some of the awful sins uh, that others do, we're not Harvey Weinstein. So our sin is not all that bad. But the truth of the matter is, in God's holy eyes, sin is sin. And he cannot tolerate any of it. And it has to be taken care of. And a lot of times, we don't fully grasp the grace of God because we don't really face up honestly to the, to the magnitude of our own sin. But when we stop and think of what we have been forgiven by the grace and the mercy and the love of God, that is what motivates us, or that is what at least should motivate us in our giving. Not because we have to, not because we're taught a tithe or any of those things, but we are giving in response to this immeasurable grace that God has poured out in our lives in the form of our salvation, and he's poured out in our lives in our everyday living as well. And so we give also out of gratitude for God's generosity. Stop and think about this. How much you think you have or how little you think you have in light of living in our culture, in our world. Remember, you and I are one of the 1% super rich worldwide. God has been incredibly generous by allowing us to be born in this time in this country. He has been beyond belief generous to us. And when we give, again, it's not because we have to, but it's because we recognize this generosity and we are so grateful to him for it. And so we give. We give tithes. The Bible also talks about offerings. The tithe is just the starting point. Over the years, I've had people tell me very proudly, oh, I tithe. Matter of fact, I think a politician recently just told us that. Well, I tithe. I give 10%. That's just the beginning. The Bible talks about tithes and offerings that go beyond the tithe. And you can think about it in terms of tithes and offerings. Or in recent years, in my own mind and in my own practice, I've begun to think in terms of proportional giving. It's not even about what's a tithe and what are offerings beyond a tithe. But giving in proportion to God's grace extended toward me. 
and to give in relationship to God's generosity as he has entrusted to me in the later years of my life more and more to use for his purposes. Well, number nine. We're almost there. Number nine. Remember, you will be audited. And so will I. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who have blessed, are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now let's read this together. This was their response when they heard him say this. And let's, let's read this together, starting now. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. See, one day, you and I will stand before the Lord. We will stand before God Almighty, and there will be an audit. And on that day, all that is his that he has given to me, in light of the way in which I have made decisions about how I would manage it and how I would dole it out, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as you are in a season where you as a church and as individuals within the church are praying about what you are going to do, in the coming year. Remember these things. And then, as God leads you, make decisions that will ensure that when you do stand before him on audit day, he will look and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, you have blessed us beyond belief. Forgive us for thinking it's ours. Forgive us for thinking we're clever and we're good because we've been able to do the things that have amassed it all. Remind us of these truths that we might be found on Judgment Day to be faithful servants, having handled wisely all that you have put within our control. Make of us stewards to whom you can say, well done, 
good and faithful steward. Amen. 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 Let's give a big hand to Dr. Hoyt. Yes. As the ushers are getting ready, I want to thank our church for your generosity, your tithes and offering in expanding and extending the kingdom of God. One of the ways we use your money is uh, we support our missionaries. And we support about five missionaries uh, in this church. One of them is Melinda Bates. And she's going to come here next Sunday. And you'll be able to have lunch with her on Monday. You can talk to Doris uh, about that. And she will be with the youth on Wednesday. And she will give a brief update here on Sunday morning. Uh, And they're doing God's work outside the country. And thank you for joining and supporting in that effort. Can can, Can I ask the ushers to come forward and I'm going to pray for the tithes and offering. Father, we thank you for your word. The word of God that uh, when we lend to the poor, we honor you. When we give cheerfully, it pleases you. Uh, Help us to have a model of the Macedonian Christians who gave themselves first. Help us to give you first today. And as we...